developing your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Martin Pierce. Policy Forum Pod is produced at Crawford School, the region's leading graduate policy school. You can find out more about us at crawford.anu.edu.au. Well, it's the first part of the year and I hope you all had a great festive break and feel rested and ready for a year that hopefully promises exciting progressive policy announcements and a genuine attempt to tackle the region's problems rather than a soul-destroying grind through a general election campaign where the main topic of dispute is somebody's baseball hat and whether they walk funny in videos. You criticise this, Martin, but these are very important campaign issues. They help to decide how people vote. You didn't include kissing babies in there. So. Well, there'll be plenty of that to it's come. It's a rich tapestry. Yeah, but look, I have got some good news to start the year off. You can now interact with all of us on our brand new, super shiny, we just got it for Christmas and haven't yet bought of it and put it back in the box, Facebook group. You can chat with the presenters, you can tell us what you want to want us to discuss on the pod, and you can get a sense of what happens behind the scenes with us here. You can find us, follow us, friend us, and do whatever it is uh, else you do at Facebook, uh, at groups, forward slash policy forum pod. I'm sure if you just do a search, you'll find us there. Jump on and join our gang there. And talking of the gang, I'd like to introduce my fellow panellists today. Uh, Dr. Jill Shepard is a political scientist at the ANU School of Politics and International Relations. She's got expertise in political behaviour and Australian government and politics. Welcome, Jill. Thanks, Martin. I like being a member of a gang. I feel incredibly tough. Yeah. We'll maybe have some kind of uniform that we might wear. Please don't. Maybe some kind of gang sign, perhaps? Oh, God, no. Just a funny handshake? Nope. Nope? Okay, all right. We're just a gang then. Okay, so, uh, Jill, how was your Christmas and New Year? From your Twitter, you seem to be watching a lot of cricket. Well, summer is for watching cricket. Uh, it's. I don't think it's any uh, surprise to anyone that I adore cricket. So that is how I spend a lot of time. And it's the first test in, t- in Canberra this week. It's extremely exciting times. And who is playing in the first test? Australia and Sri Lanka. And And I will be there on day one. So who's going to win? Put your neck on the line? Sri Lanka are no good. (laughs) Bless. Right. Okay. So it will be a real shock when they do win. (laughs) Almost certainly. (laughs) You probably get good odds. I always go for the underdog. Well, Sri Lanka is your team. And and the voice you heard there is our second presenter who is making her pod debut, and that is Tess McGurr. Tess is a Sir Roland Wilson PhD scholar here at Crawford School. She's researching how social services can complement welfare reform to improve employment outcomes. Welcome, Tess. Hello. Thank you for having me. Tess, this is your pod debut, but it's not your first radio rodeo, is it? Tell us a little about your previous broadcasting experience. Yeah, not my first rodeo. So I always dreamed of being a radio presenter when I was young, and I must have hustled my parents enough. And 
joined the local radio station, Tank FM, at Kempsey, Kempsey represent, <laughs> when I was 11 years old. I think I was the youngest at the time, radio presenter. My girlfriend and I had a program. We would... We only had two CDs, so it wasn't too exciting <laughs> and it was always repetitive music that we played. We would play a song and give a shout out to our pet guinea pig or whoever <laughs> else we had on on board, but it was not first radio. Uh, let's hope I've improved a little bit from when I was 11. And can you tell us what the two CDs were? Oh, one of them was like Hottest Hits and think the other oh, hottest hit so it was that was pretty great it was maybe 2 years old so <laughs> not too good and another one was i think oasis so we thought we were pretty cool my dad had a great cd collection but it was everything from tibetan throat singing to japanese opera so not too appealing to not the Kempsey demographic <laughs> Well, you'd be surprised you'd be surprised we had some regular listeners so did my dad's show but oh bless it was yeah, it was fantastic. Loved so did it. you get listeners calling in and contacting you and making requests? We did. So on one occasion, we had a shout out to a person who we didn't know. Some girls rang in and asked us to give a shout out. And, you know, a few years down the track, we went to high school and realised that we just played the Spice Girls for the biggest, toughest guy at school. <laughs> but we did have a regular crew of listeners, some senior citizens who would regularly call oh, in. Bless. And Yeah, so when they would ask, they would request a particular song, but... We would say, oh, thank you for this request. We don't have this song, but we can play you Chumbawamba. (laughs) (laughs) Top thumping again. Yes. (laughs) So uh, how long did this go on for and how did this come to an end? It was a few years and I'm not sure what happened and why it came to an end. Maybe I think my girlfriend started high school and I was in year six and all those important tween issues that we had to go through and I probably moved on to some other fun activity. (laughs) But And maybe now I'm too old to be... Uh, the radio presenter on my preferred radio <laughs> program. Well, if if any I'm of I'm into our, Radio National. Yeah, yeah Radio National. Yeah, obvious step up. Uh, <laughs> if any of our listeners are listening in Kempsey and remember this radio show, uh, or indeed would like to push for a uh, historic kind of return for you back on uh, Kempsey Radio, please do get in contact. So today on the pod, we're taking a look at the state of Australia's Green growth, environmental trends and governance. At the recent World Economic Forum in Davos, David Attenborough painted a fairly gloomy picture for the future of the world's climate if governments uh, continue to fail to take sufficient action to address it. And Australia, of course, has had its own struggles in this space, from the trashing of an emissions trading scheme to last year's attempt to implement the National Energy Guarantee. Every 10 years, the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD, publishes a country report on Australia's environmental performance to help the government assess major environmental problems such as CO2 emissions or water management issues and at the same time hold policymakers accountable. And in fact, that report was released this week. So where does Australia actually stand today? How can the government build the environmental future that the country needs? And is the future of Australia's environment really all doom and gloom? Well, earlier today, Jill and Tess caught up with three experts from the OECD to tell us about the report's findings and what it says about the state of Australia's environmental performance. Who were these folk? Uh, Yes, so we were lucky to be able to talk to uh, Natalie Gurua, who's the head of the Environmental Performance and Information Division at the OECD. Uh, She's from Quebec in uh, in Canada and has a really interesting take, I think, particularly on 
the problems of when you have multi-level governments, state and federal governments trying to coordinate on this. We also talked to Anthony Cox, who is Australian uh, and is the Deputy Director of the Environment Directorate at the OECD and really interesting to hear about the different perspectives uh, coming from uh, Australia as he does. He was a senior senior economist in the public service here before he went to work at the OECD. And also Frederic Jegal, who was responsible for this particular review. She's a policy officer at the uh, environmental performance review team at the OECD. She's got a master's in statistics and computer science. I mean, these are genuinely brilliant people uh, who have taken a really comprehensive look at Australia's uh, environmental governance system and, and from a really objective and uh, peer-reviewed evidence-based uh, perspective. It, it's a great report. Well, I'm really interested to hear what they've got to say. And I know our listeners will be as well. Environmental issues always um, rate very highly on their sort of list of concerns. So we'll get to that interview in a second. But before we do, a reminder to our listeners to please get in touch with us. Let us know your comments, your questions, your thoughts, um, whatever you want to say to us. You can reach us on Twitter, where we are Apps Policy Forum. You can email us where we are, podcast at policyforum.net, or as we said earlier, you can join our gang. I'm doing the gang sign, as as I say this. He really is. <laughs> Jill is shaking her head at me. You can join our gang with our Facebook group, which is Policy Forum Pod. And stick around after the main interview because we're going to be going over some of your questions and comments. But for now, let's have a listen to that interview. So welcome to Australia, to the three of you. This is Australia's third environmental performance report in 10 years. In the meantime, we've had multiple energy emergencies and climate policy failures. We've had a, an emissions trading scheme be floated and then pulled back off the table. We haven't adopted the National Energy Guarantee in the last 12 months. These are just a few examples. If I can go around to each of you, in turn, how would you describe Australia's environmental performance in one word? Uh, Natalie, we might start with you. I would say uh, it's mixed. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's generous, probably. And Frederic? No, I think that uh, that the idea of the EPR program is trying to uh, make a balanced analysis, recognizing progress, uh, to maybe uh, be able to give criti critics at the same time. So I think it's a mix. Even if we if we've seen many changes in politics recently, and that's the reason why one of our main recommendation is to stabilize this policy, <laughs> in in particular in the climate policy. Well, we want that too. We want stability. And Anthony? I would have to say it's mixed, uh, but with real I'm challenges ahead. I'm seeing a trend ahead. here. <laughs> well, you're talking to uh, civil servants, so there's not going to come down hard on one side or, or the other. But I think it's clearly successes and there are clearly challenges. It's an important nuance to introduce into the debate, though, because I think here in Australia, we can be scathingly critical of, of our governments and what they do. You know, it's the Australian way in a lot of senses. So it's interesting and it's, I think, incredibly productive to have that, uh, I guess, that level of expertise and that uh, reminder that it is mixed. It really is mixed. Against all of this, how is Australia doing, say, compared to how we're doing in the first and second report? Are, are we getting better? I don't think it's a question of getting be of getting better between uh, the different reviews. The purpose of these reviews is to shine a spotlight at a point in time uh, on a country's environmental performance so that 
you've got an opportunity to take stock of yep. progress, to identify what the challenges are, what the opportunities are, and to get an external view on how you might go about harnessing the opportunities and addressing the challenges. Now, um, we all know that there's multiple reviews undertaken about environmental policy in Australia. The OECD adds its voice, an external voice, to that to those reviews. And so we hope that by raising the level of debate, by raising important issues from a group that doesn't have a stake in the debate, Yep. Uh, we are truly external. We it's a peer review process in Australia. Uh, sorry, in it's a peer review post process in the in the OECD. So it's not the voice of one country. It's the voice of thirty six member countries of the OECD telling uh, Australia, yes, you've done well in these areas, but in these other areas, here's some ideas for how you might improve your performance. That's incredibly important. We're not Australians aren't necessarily very good at listening to what other countries have to say about how we're performing. But you're right, this is this is an important inventory that does shine a light on things that Australia can work on. So to that extent, the report talks about, uh, you know, intensifying efforts to meet the Paris Agreement, to lower our carbon emissions generally, um, to maintain a consistent energy and climate policy framework you know, when we talk about policy stability, and I feel like that's what I talk about whenever I'm on the policy forum pod, the need for greater stability in Australia. These are all things that we don't talk about a lot. We talk a lot about, uh, I guess, whether we're acknowledging climate change, for instance. Do you have any sense of what leads a government, I guess, how governments can create stability in energy policy? Do you have ideas on this, Frederick? I think uh, one of the important uh, issues that we are uh, and, and highlighting in the report is that it, it needs to rely on a strong evidence base to, to, to help uh, all stakeholders to agree on, on the same arguments and uh, to avoid... Uh, political decisions that, has, that are not understood by the public. I mean, so one of the important messages of this uh, report is to, to build this strong evidence base to make the policy, to make progress in policy. And we see this in other policy domains, that experts are probably falling out of fashion a little bit, that governments are looking, uh, looking to experts to inform public debate uh, less and less. It, Natalie, is this something that you see around the OECD countries? Yes, indeed. Uh, I think that the uh, importance of uh, considering all the ranges of uh, stakeholders in a public debate is more and more uh, critical. Um, for the review, for instance, we uh, systematically uh, discuss with the civil society, with NGOs, with academics and trade unions and even business association um, the stance of the environment and what they see as the main threat. So those considerations uh, with the broader community are always very uh, informative. Following on from that, Natalie, on Policy Forum, we often hear that Australia needs a price on carbon. Uh, what's your view on a return of a carbon price in Australia and what have you heard from stakeholders? Well, we, what we have heard from uh, our um, visits here, we this is our third time, um, is that in uh, several states uh, there's quite some uh, ambition to uh, uh, limit uh, greenhouse gas emissions. There's some ambition to have a clean air and uh, to have a um, a transport sector that is uh, efficient and uh, public services that are of high quality. So um, 
carbon pricing is one of the tools that uh, could help uh, steer uh, businesses and uh, and the broader community towards uh, those goals. So um, we have been considering this uh, um, as uh, one piece of um, the policy toolkit that could be useful. Are there any other tools that could be useful in the Australian context? Uh, certainly, uh, there are some uh, regulatory tools that uh, are also um, very important to uh, make sure that there's some certainty in uh, the way uh, investments are, are um, decision on investment are taken. Um, there's some uh, information bases uh, that are also uh, very important to secure. And there's also some uh, voluntary agreements with uh, industries and other stakeholders that are also part of the tools. It's interesting that you mentioned about state innovation and states um, potentially, I guess, pushing each other to to further uh, what they're doing in regards to, say, carbon emission reductions. We often think about uh, states in Australia as being unnecessarily unnecessary policy providers, so that they create too much overlap. That there's confusion about accountability and uh, they get in the way of policy coordination. Do you have thoughts on this sort of the role of the states, uh, I guess, either positively in that they're driving each other to innovate or negatively in that they're creating uh, policy obstacles? Well, I think in a federal system like Australia, uh, the importance of coordination and collaboration across the different levels of government is critical to not just environmental yep. policy, but to all to all mm. policy. And this can be both a strength and a weakness, I think. If states and Commonwealth get together behind a common vision uh, with a streamlined set of tools, a streamlined approach and pro process, then that can be a very powerful driver for change and for uh, and for Im for improvements across the board. Where there's discord, it's uh, a real challenge in terms of um, trying to get that action underway. And then you see more disparate and diverse me diverse measures in place. Not that that's n always a bad thing. One of the things we're seeing in other jurisdictions is that where there's a lack of leadership and vision at the national level, there is often a lot of action at the state and city level. Uh, this is this we're seeing this in other OECD countries. So that there's a lot of drive at the subnational le subnational level that doesn't rely on mm. the national government being the um, catalyst for for change. And from a political science perspective, we tend to think this is a good thing, but it's often not pu publicly popular. Well, it's problematic um, in that it, it creates confusion amongst the, the community. They don't necessarily understand the direction of the country as a whole, and it can lead to unfortunate political outcomes. Uh, one of the main recommendations of this review is that the Commonwealth government really does need to step up and develop a integrated climate and energy policy at the national level out to 2030, but guided by a long-term vision uh, for a low-emission Australia out to 2050. Now, without that kind of vision, it's going to be very difficult to then ensure that the policy framework you have today is fit for purpose to achieve that longer-term vision. I think water management is another example where we need the federal government, states and local communities and Indigenous communities 
all on board and it has been quite difficult just over the past few weeks. The Australian public has witnessed the impact of drought combined with poor water management with millions of fish dying in the Menindee Lakes. Um, have you heard of this and do you have any opinions on how we, we came to this situation? You've probably been faced when you've landed in the country with these awful photos of millions of dead fish. I mean, we're certainly very interested in hearing what the outcomes of the inquiries are as to what's the cause of this. There's there's no doubt that Australia has unique challenges in in how it, in in the conditions under which it has to manage its its, its water resources, and we don't have the expertise to delve into that at this point in time, but. What I would say is that the is that Australia is regarded internationally as one of the leaders in terms of water policy management. The Murray-Darling Basin Plan provided a very strong institutional framework and structure to better manage the water the, the water resources. Sure, there are things that Australia could do better. There's implementation issues. There's information issues. Uh, that need to be addressed, and and they and they have to be addressed. And I hope, and um, perhaps this latest episode will be one of the catalysts to drive some more efforts in that regard. But the key is that uh, there is there is the framework there. There's a beautiful map in your report of Australia, and it shows the waterways and lots of lakes. And I was noticing that even though the lakes were pretty and blue in the picture. They're completely dry in reality <laughs> and in the middle of the desert. So that wouldn't have made a very good map if it was all <laughs> if it was all just brown. <laughs> Another aspect of, like we mentioned, of managing the land and water resources in Australia um, and other resources is the inclusion of Indigenous communities in the policymaking process. Um, in some of our podcasts last year on water justice, the development of Northern Australia and other issues, both of which featured Indigenous leaders, we heard that Australia doesn't have a very good track record of engaging Indigenous peoples in management of the land. How do you think Australia could do better in this regard? One of the um, um, positive aspects uh, that we uh, um, discuss in the report, and I think that could be a model of engagement uh, for other countries, including the country where I come from, Canada, is your rangers program, actually. Mm. Uh, this is something that uh, um, has been uh, uh, quite valuable in, in integrating the um, those community with their knowledge and their very uh, specific uh, skills about uh, uh, the nature. And, and we believe that this is uh, a very positive achievement in Australia. Again, that's interesting because it's something that we don't celebrate much here. Um, I, I think people in government know about the Indigenous Rangers program and people in local communities, but it's it has been quite an, an innovative program and something that has been Really, in a lot of ways, an, unmitig uh, an unmitigated success. It's been um, it's been excellent, but we don't sort of talk about it. And not just from an environmental perspective, but from social and economic and uh, community development sides as well. Very we, successful. We do have these sort of good examples on hand that we don't always embrace very well. Something else that the report talks about, Frederic, is is green growth and. Uh, OECD governments, OECD governments, uh, previous commitments to strengthening uh, green growth strategies within their individual countries. The idea that the um, sustainable development goals are important not just for economic outcomes and social outcomes, but that there's a, a really important uh, climate adaptation and environmental uh, resilience aspect to that as well. We don't have 
a defined timeline for the implementation of the SDGs at the moment and the green growth strategy part of that? Is that something that you would recommend that Australia introduce? Yes, that's uh, that's what we were hoping for last year uh, when uh, the implementation review uh, was discussed in Australia. And uh, it's true that other countries have uh, taken better benefit of this kind of reviews to uh, define uh, new priorities, define timelines to achieve the SDGs, and that's one of the recommendations that Australia could uh, build on this review to define its priority in terms of sustainable development. Do the SDGs uh, represent the kind of forward-thinking framework that Anthony's talking about, something that we could hang our environmental policy on until 2050? I mean, the SDGs are framed in out to 2030. Yep. Uh, They're a good catalogue of the kind of goals that the world as a whole needs to needs to embrace and do work on. But I think we need to go beyond 2030. Uh, mm. That's only 10 years away. The kinds of changes that we're seeing in society and and and, the, and economies, you know, the rapid urbanisation, the rapid change in, 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 te- in, te- in technology, um, the growth of new business models, new finance mo- models and so on means that the world in 2050 is going to be fundamentally different mm. to what it is now. And to be able to embrace that 2050 world, to, to see how we're going to have the policy settings now, we need to do more than just go t- go 10 years out. So the SDGs provide a, a, a useful guide, but we need to go beyond that. Now, I'm a, I'm a cynic, um, as I've shown in previous episodes of the pod. I I study politics and I study elections. What incentive is there for any government to look beyond three years or look beyond six years at most? Now, I, you know, David Attenborough is not a cynic and he recently said in Davos, it's tempting and understandable to ignore the evidence and carry on as usual or to be filled with doom and gloom. We need to move beyond guilt or blame and get on with the practical tasks at hand. Why should governments do that? which I know is an awfully provocative question because, you know, governments are made of people who don't want, you know, future generations to die of climate change-related disasters. But there is no political incentive. So how, how do we make that happen? How do we create the incentive for governments to legislate or create frameworks for 2050 let alone 2030, let alone 2025. Do you have thoughts on this, Frederic? I mean, the, the agreed uh, long-term vision agreed by all stakeholders is a way to put pressure on the government to go beyond this, uh, this uh, short cycle. That's one of the that's one of the reason why we are also supporting these uh, long term visions. Otherwise, the pressure, the public pressure, is uh, an important one. So, so it needs public pressure. And the public pressure needs to be sort of coordinated by civil society and stakeholders. It needs it needs information. I think one of the consistent themes in our review is that the information base for a whole range of environmental issues, from climate to water to waste to biodiversity. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both, 
in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Needs to be improved in Australia. They have, over the years, uh, the last, last decade, there's been a number of attempts to drive new initiatives in this regard, but they haven't really come through with the goods. So creating the information base and getting that out to civil society, to, to, to communities, is a way for Australians to better understand the role that the environment and, and the natural uh, resources and the, nat- the, the services they get from the environment are so critical to their well-being, not just their economic well-being, but their cultural, social uh, well-being as so that would take the form of reports to parliament, sort of statutory reports, and I don't think there's any one me- one mechanism for it. Uh, you'd you would have to start with getting the information bases agreed, and the, the inform- Australia is very good at developing information. We yep. we're one of the world le- world leaders in many regards. There is a coordination ish- a coordination mm-hmm. issue yep. between federal and state. Getting that streamlined would be a really good step, but then communicating on it. The, the, there's a huge agenda out there for governments uh, and civil society to make much better use of the modern, uh, com- modern communication tools, yep. like podcasts, for example. <laughs> but, uh, uh, so, and it's that awareness raising that can help yep. put pressure on. I'm very passionate about the groundswell that happens, especially in, in environmental issues. In Australia, with this report and some of the other reports that have happened, have, have you noticed there's more change happening because of public pressure? And what can people do at the local level to create some of these changes and not have to rely on our governments having better coordination or um, adopt recommendations? We haven't been here long enough to notice the change uh, within the communities. Uh, But what is clear is that uh, um, there is a need for broader conversation with all the stakeholders and all the interviews we have done have shown that people wants to express a bit more how they value uh, their lives and the, the the quality of the life that they want to have. So there is clearly something that is uh, coming out of that. One of the things we've seen at the OECD is a movement to go beyond GDP as the me- as yep. the only measure of growth. So. We have developed uh, cons- uh, in an index, a, 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 a how's your life index. Uh, yep. So that goes into the well-being. So when you when you take that into the policy world, you start to think, okay, the government wishes to achieve certain environmental goals. Uh, how can we translate that into people's well-being? How can we make an, the action at the individual and community level? Resonate. For example, uh, waste is a good example. You know, re- the need to to recycle because that's something the c- the community can feel the effects of or the ben- the the benefits of straight away. Sim- sim- similarly, air pollution. Yeah. Uh, Australia has rising uh, emissions of nitrogen oxide. The the NOx emissions they're going up. Addressing the sources and of air, of air of air pollution will have a beneficial effect now 
on people's health and their well-being and their quality, their quality of life, and will also benefit climate action in the in the future. So, trying to identify the co-benefits, as we say in the jar in the in <laughs> the jargon, uh, is going to be critical. I'm going to throw some more jargon at, back at you because I love this idea of how we measure things, right? And and how often we're measuring the wrong things. We mm-hmm. think we're measuring. We think we're measuring development with GDP or we think we're measuring uh, democracy with the number of elections that you hold, all of these sorts of things. And so often we're getting the measurement wrong. We're measuring the wrong thing. And so even having this discussion, I think, is great. E- even talking about the very specific and very technical elements of what we're doing, even though it's not always fun and we do try to communicate in a sort of publicly accessible way, but these are really technical and important issues. So we might, uh, we'll leave on that happy note because I'm always happy to talk about measurement problems and, and how we measure well-being. If I could ask all of you, what's the one bit of advice that you would give to the government We'll say the Australian government, but if you if you don't want to, if you don't want to be so specific, any government with regard to manage the environment, what's the one thing that you would say to them? We'll start with you, Natalie. I would say that uh, the provincial governments and and the central government should uh, really get together to to form a. Um, an inform a vision for uh, uh, where the country wants to go in 2030 and in 2050 uh, based on the international commitment that Australia has taken, how to get there. I would ask them to talk together. <laughs> I think we can learn a lot from Canada too in terms of, of federal relations, you know, federal state relations that no one loves federalism like Canadians love <laughs> federalism. So that's a great answer. Uh, Frederick, uh, I would say something which is uh, the DNA of the of this program. Uh, do what you said you would do, uh, because basically that's what we are trying. That's what we are calling uh, environmental uh, performance. How we are how mm. we measure performance is uh, to the extent to which countries are uh, achieving the target they set for themselves. So just do what because usually countries they know what they they need to do. So just do and they know what they're not doing, but they're not telling us what they're not doing. And finally, Anthony. Well, I would echo the uh, call for long term vision. I think that's that's critical, but. An essential part of that is is recognising there are huge economic potential in many parts of the environment, the environmental agenda. Australia has huge untapped renewable energy potential, and uh, there's, a, there's a great opportunity to be a world leader in uh, re- in renewable energy techno- technology. So, grasping that opportunity is is something I would really encourage governments to. That's quite a positive note to end on. So I thank you all for coming so much. You've landed in uh, landed in Australia 24 hours ago. You've dragged yourselves into the podcast studio. We are intensely grateful for that. Thank you, Natalie. Thank you, Frederic. Thank you, Anthony. And thank you to my co-host, Tess. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Well, huge thanks again to our guests from the OECD. I hope you enjoyed that interview. I found it really interesting. And if you would like to read the report that they talked about, uh, we'll leave a link to that in the show notes. So obviously, I've still got Jill and Tess here, and I'm interested to hear your thoughts, what your take was on that. Jill, what was your sort of key take-home point? Well, I'm fascinated by the idea that we're not doing as badly as we think. We get 
policy debate in Australia is not great at the moment. I don't think, yeah, I don't think that's a particularly contrarian or provocative opinion. Uh, and so it's it's kind of refreshing to remember that we're not doing badly as things go. We we have had problems, and I think what Frederic pointed out that. Our political instability is causing policy instability. And, and so it's not just that we're turning over prime ministers, you know, like they're going out of fashion, but this is having some impact on our capacity to plan for the future, that no one's thinking beyond the next election cycle. And that's really important to, to think about as well. So yeah, that, that, those two sort of, those, uh, I guess those two takeouts for me, stability and the fact that we're not going that badly. Yeah, so Tess, what about you? What was your key take-home from that? I'm quite an optimist as well. So I did enjoy um, the good things that are coming out of the report. And Anthony Cox said, also mentioned about how there's a lot of untapped potential in Australia, particularly mm. around our renewable resources. And I think that green growth is something that we'll really see moving forward, particularly as we have societies almost jumping on this green craze where we're very keen to be buying local and making changes at the home level to contribute to then the broader efforts that the government's making. And I thought Natalie made that point really uh, neatly and interestingly, and it's not something that I thought about, that it does seem to be coming from the bottom up, right? If it's not local communities, it's state governments rather than federal governments. And you know, again, I'm big on the states. Like I, I would keep the states and get rid of the federal government. I, I love that it's coming from the bottom uh, now. Oh, hold on. Did you say keep the states and get rid of the federal government? Yeah. Because I would do the opposite. We'll talk about this on the next part. Okay. But the problem is, of course, when you actually get to the federal government, you need this stuff legislated, you know, or when it gets to COAG and the ministerial councils, that's when you have the coordination problem. But at least the innovation, at least the idea is getting sparked at the at the grassroots. And, you know, maybe we're both, you know, Pollyannas clearly and just looking for the good in all of this. Well, there you go, listeners. You heard what we thought of the discussion. And we are really interested to hear about what you thought of the discussion. You can get in contact with us on Twitter. We're at Apps Policy Forum. You can email us, podcast at policyforum.net, or jump on our Facebook group and uh, let us know. Be part of the pod squad. Now, as regular listeners will know, at the end of the podcast each week, we have a look back on some of the comments and questions that we have received, both on the podcast itself and on articles that we've published on our website, policyforum.net. And, and soon on our new on the new Facebook page. And soon on the new well, Facebook group. group. The Facebook group, yeah, yeah. So um, the first one that I want to tackle is a story which will be familiar to everyone around the table. Let's have a listen to this. Oh, my name is Dick Arnold. I'm here with Rob McBride for this really sad bloody shot here caused by the government, environmental disaster... And look at these iconic fish of Australia being treated like this. You have to be bloody disgusted with yourself, you politicians and cotton grower manipulators. That's this, bloody this is, atrocious. This is nothing to do with drought. This no. is a man-made disaster brought to you by the New South look. Wales government, the federal government and the Murray-Darling yeah. Authority, oh. Basin Authority. This is the result of draining the Manini Lakes twice in four years and killing the system. This fish is 100 years old. It's never coming back. This is bloody disgraceful. Absolutely. Absolutely. Bloody shameful. 
where's a bit of world coverage on this? Look at this. That's Australia. We're not bloody fourth world, fifth world country here, for Christ's sake. This is bloody hand back, Hand back behind us. Oh. These are just two of the many. This is the most disgusting thing I've ever seen in my life. It's got to get out to the world press. This is a That's bloody disgrace. This is a man-made disaster. Look at these animals. Look at them. That's makes me feel like crying again. Well, that was the audio you heard there of a video that actually went viral around the world. You know, he said that it's got to get worldwide coverage, and indeed it did. It was the fish kill that happened in Menindee. Uh, And in fact, there was a piece that was written about this called Toxic, What is Rotten in the Murray-Darling Basin, which was by Quentin Grafton, sometimes of this pod, Emma Carmody, Matthew Koloff and John Williams. And the article talked about a devastating failure of governance and policy that had caused uh, a million fish to die in Menindee Lakes and makes recommendations as to what needs to be done to prevent future fish kills. So we had Heaps of comments on this, as you would expect. A comment from Ruby Davis on Policy Forum talking about the extraction rates, leaving a a mere trickle flowing into the Darling below Burke. And it's seen that she talks about how she's seen the very bottom of the Darling and uh, it can easily be seen on graphs and obviously on the river itself. And she'd never seen it so low. A comment from It's Nathan Taylor on Twitter say. Great article on the importance of water reform. The millennium drought saw urban Australia first withdraw the social licence from rural Australia. What will happen here? And a comment from Mark on Facebook. Are there any long-term management plans put in place to avoid such incidents? It's so sad. And in fact, there was a further incident of fish kills in the same area this week. Again, thousands of fish. Absolutely devastating to see and obviously provokes very strong feelings. Jill, perhaps I'll start with you. What's your take on uh, those comments and, in fact, the issue itself? The thing that I see, uh, you know, the sort of underlying problem here and and with the massive caveat that I am not an environmental expert or a water policy expert, but assist this incredible lack of trust. I really like this idea from Nathan Taylor about the, the withdrawing of the social license, social license. So at what point do we, I guess, uh, empower and and I don't mean empower in the sort of, um, you know, in a, in a pie in the sky sense, but literally let local communities legislate for the things that affect them. And we've seen this. We talked about this in the millennium drought, about the the problems of Queensland pulling too much water out of the Murray-Darling Basin, of granting irrigation licences to cotton farmers. I think there's just a an overwhelming sense that, Governments keep stuffing up. Governments aren't listening to people and that we can't trust them to uh, to look after this resource properly. I think even if a government, whether state or federal or the Murray-Darling Basin Commission does get together and uh, draw up a long-term management plan, I don't think there's any confidence among rural Australians, let alone uh, city Australians, that it, it would A, work and B, be uh, carried out. I think governments don't necessarily do what they say. And and that comes back to something that Frederick said in the interview about, you know, her one advice, one piece of advice to governments would be, well, actually do the things that you say you're going to do. Australian governments haven't for so long that why would we expect them to start now? 
Tess, I want to turn to you. I mean, in that video, they talked about drawing world attention to it, and he obviously did. That video went viral. It went all over the world. Everyone knows about those fish kills and the subsequent fish kills that have happened. Do you think that has a kind of long-term gain for people who are suffering like this? Well, it definitely draws more attention to it, like Mm. you said. And even, say, with the OECD report, having the um, international attention on one country, being able to make comparisons, having a transparent view of what's going on in a in a country um, available for other countries to see and hopefully learn from, I think is important. Well, that's great. Thank you both for that. The next one I want to talk about is a piece that was written by Marianne Dickey called Australia Has Missed the Boat. And in it, Marianne argues that by not signing the Global Compact on Migration, Australia has left itself alone and adrift on regional migration policy. And there was a comment on Twitter from Carcoda underscore more, I hope I pronounced that correctly, who responded, rubbish. Immigration is a sovereign issue which requires detailed understanding of our society and economy. Determine what is appropriate and optimal for our nation. We can't outsource immigration to the UN, which knows little or nothing of our requirements for peopling this continent. Jill, what do you make of that? Well, I mean, it's not wrong. And I know that that's probably a fairly sort of provocative uh, position to take, but even drawing on what we're just talking about with regard to having the the rest of the world focus on Australia and our problems for a little while, we're not usually very comfortable with this. We don't like other countries telling us what to do. We're happy for us to police ourselves. We don't like by being policed by the rest of the world. And so this, this uh, sentiment about you know, immigration as a sovereignty as a sovereign issue is a really mainstream Australian view that we should decide. Dare I say, you know, who comes into our country and the circumstances under I was, which they come. I was come. wondering how long it would take I, to quote John Howard, right? I and I know it's it, it leaves a taste, a certain taste in your mouth now when we think about you know two thousand and one and that election, which was fairly nasty from both sides, but. This is still mainstream Australian public opinion, and I don't think we should discount it. I think it makes a lot of sense. I don't necessarily subscribe to it in full, but I certainly empathise with it. And I don't think that governments have in Australia have been very good at drawing, uh, drawing a, a sort of um, reasonable line between the two responsibilities that we have, one as as a member of a global network of countries and one as a country which has sovereign borders and which, you know, is democratically elected and, and responsible to our own citizens. Now, that shouldn't mean, in my own personal view, that we shut down our borders at all. I would uh, much rather have much freer and open borders. But we need leadership on that. We need to have that explained to us and, and why that would be a good thing. Uh, governments haven't done that. And so I don't think they can be surprised that we want to pull out of some global compact on migration that we don't necessarily think is in our best interest. Well, that's great. Uh, so thanks very much, Kokoda Moore. And in fact, uh, thanks to all the people who have left comments for us. We really enjoy hearing your thoughts and ideas and your feedback. So please do keep doing that. Uh, The third and final piece I want to talk about is a piece we published this week called Misguided Multilateralism. It was by Wesley Vidmeyer, 
and it took a look at the concerns German Chancellor Angela Merkel expressed at the World Economic Forum Davos conference recently about the future of multilateralism and what role prevailing neoliberal wisdom may be uh, playing in that. It's a really good article and worth a read, but I want to zoom in on something else that happened at Davos, which I, I thought was very interesting. It was a panel including the historian Rutger Bregman, and uh, the audience of this panel was a room full of billionaires and the global elite. Let's have a listen to what he had to say. People talk in the language of participation and justice and equality and transparency. But then, I mean, almost no one raises the real issue of tax avoidance, right? And of the rich just not paying their fair share. I mean, it feels like I'm at a firefighters fighters conference and no one's allowed to speak about water, right? <laughs> there, was, there was only one panel, actually. Thank well, we've had two. You're the second well, of well, our panelists. There, there so was only one panel. Let's go there. One. one panel hidden away in the media center that was actually about tax avoidance. Yeah. I, was about, I was one of the 15 participants. So <laughs> something needs to change here. I mean, ten, 10 years ago, the World Economic Forum asked the question, what must industry do to prevent a broad social backlash? The answer is very simple. Just stop talking about philanthropy and start talking about taxes, mm-hmm. taxes, taxes. Well, what you wouldn't give, what I wouldn't give to get a platform at Davos, I'd have a lot of things to say. I think public opinion is turning against billionaires, which is such an absurd thing to say. Billionaires used to be so popular and now public opinion is really turning against them. I I think, well, I know that public opinion opinion is turning against visible signs of wealth inequality and that's what things like Davos are. They are uh, almost shrines to wealth inequality. Um, it, it's an incredibly uh, unself-aware group in a lot of ways. And I think this is really interesting. You know, my worry about focusing on things like tax avoidance is that it's it's seen as a silver bullet. If we can fix tax avoidance, then everything else goes with it. I mean, there's underlying systemic problems. But uh, how good, I guess, for Davos participants to have to sit there and listen to it? I'm sure most of them are tuned out. I'm not sure he'll be invited back. Next I'm not sure year. he'll be invited back. Uh, it's, I, it's really, it, it's a strange legacy of an old zeitgeist. You know, this is something that just screams 80s and 90s to me. And I think the world's moving on. Something that I always talk about in the Australian context is public opinion moving, you know, rapidly beyond where our legislators are up to. So our parliament is stuck probably 10 years ago and Australian people are much more progressive and much more small L liberal. And this is like that, but on a world scale. The world has kind of moved on, but these incredibly rich, well, men, mostly white men, are kind of, you know, clinging to the past. Um, I, I wonder what it's going to look like when public opinion changes in in really meaningful ways, but we're certainly on that path. He got sort of polite applause for, you know, possibly sl- slightly awkward applause. In from the-, the other historians and journalists yeah. in the room, <laughs> not from the billionaires. <laughs> Just three guys cheering at the back. <laughs> Woo, fist pump. So what about you, Tess? What was your take on that? Well, he did mention that there were at least two forums with approximately 15 participants who were talking about tax avoidance. I wonder if they will revise their schedule for next year. I mean, that that is an interesting question, though, right? That whole idea of, 
you know, the global elite gather at Davos every year. There's a lot of sort of back slapping going on between them about their philanthropic efforts and it was you know it was brave of him i think to to stand there and basically call them out on their tax avoidance in, instead of doing philanthropy but Tess, do you get any sense that um that something like that might actually lead to genuine change or do you feel slightly cynical that you know they'll just go home and carry on their lives as normal i am a little bit cynical about it i think they're billionaires. They've got the money to be able to get the best accountants and the best lawyers and they will be able to make changes perhaps with growing groundswell, with uh, the public so keen for more equality because it is so important. You know, who knows? Maybe there'll be a register of who are the biggest tax avoiders this year and their companies may not be as successful and they may not be as well off because the people are starting to put their money where where they want it to go. And I think that's what's going to have to happen. You can't legislate without loopholes. It's almost impossible to legislate in such a watertight way that you can't just move money around to minimise tax. I mean, tax minimisation is kind of a, you know, it's in some ways a noble aim, right? I try to tax minimise every year. It's it's the public shaming, you know, the public opinion and that kind of, dare I say, you know, court of public opinion that, is going to have to shift, I think. I was just going to jump in there and say one of my favourite roles as a policymaker or writing up legislation is find those loopholes and be like, right, what would I do if I wanted to get around this policy? Right? It's it's a really fun and nerdy game. But it's, and it's human nature, right? We are trying to find loopholes and things. So in one sense, you know, they're very sympathetic characters. <laughs> they're just trying to save their money like we all are. But on the other hand, they're billionaires and they can pay some bloody tax. You know, it's it's tough. But people are turning. This, this um, really gauche kind of grotesque um, display of wealth is extremely uncool now. And so- I know what's cool. <laughs> So there you go. You've heard our thoughts about that. What do you think? What are your thoughts and comments uh, about what we've just discussed there? Um, a big thank you again to everyone who has got in contact, got in contact with us, their questions and comments. A reminder, please do keep sending them in. That includes suggestions for what you'd like to see on future episodes of Policy Forum Pod. We're always open to ideas. You can reach us at apps. Policy Forum on Twitter, Policy Forum Pod on our brand new super cool uh, Facebook group, or just drop us a line, podcast at policyforum.net. And if you've enjoyed today's episode, and if you got this far, then I hope you have enjoyed at least some of it, then perhaps you might want to leave us a quick review on iTunes. It only take you 30 seconds or so. All you need to do is find and click that fifth star. That will be a huge help to us in getting the word out about the podcast. We'll be back next week with another Policy Forum pod. But until then, from me, Martin Pierce, cheerio. And from me, Jill Shepard, have a good week. Laters from Tess McGurr. <laughs> That's not good. I can fix that. Kepsi <laughs> <laughs> <Kepsy> represent. <laughs> Ha <laughs> ha